So why don't you open your Bibles to Matthew 13? We are more or less finishing the series through the parables of this chapter. They've been stories about the kingdom of God, Jesus painting with different colors and different details, facets of what he uh, anticipated and predicted with respect to his kingdom, which he was inaugurating, beginning with his arrival. You remember in the early chapters of the Gospels, it says he came preaching the kingdom and something changed when Jesus entered the world and something shifted in a spiritual way when he died and rose again from the dead that forever changed the course of history. And these parables help explain something of the repercussions, the kind of knock-on effect, the domino effect of what he did when he began to change history. It was a very obscure and hidden corner of the world where these things happened. And anyone could have been forgiven for thinking that they were non-events. But now we look back and see billions of people who've been impacted by the reality of Jesus and what he announced. And we can no longer deny his power, his authenticity, his, his, uh, his identity as the Son of God, his divinity. And so here we are. We're at the end of this chapter. And uh, I'm going to read to you verses 47 to 50, the last of the parables in the chapter anyway. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I've read a couple of times that um, when uh, one of the productivity tips that Mark Twain used to abide by and teach others was that you should swallow the frog, which means that when you have um, a job which is looming over you as the hardest of all your jobs, you should basically eat it get rid of it, swallow the frog, deal with that first of all. And so what I want to do when looking at this parable is begin at the end, because um, unless you are asleep, this is some of the most harrowing language that you'll find in the New Testament. When Jesus says in the last verse here, verse 50, that the angels will throw people into the fiery furnace, and in that place they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want to begin there and then work our way back and, and uncover some of what the parable's about. We've already heard some of this language in the earlier parable of the weeds and the, t- and, the, uh, and the tares where they're separated into different groups and different types of people in the world. And now he's focusing in on the church and saying there's different kinds of people in the church. And he's saying that there's different destinies, heaven and hell. And he uses the most offensive language. I think that the idea of hell is probably one of the most offensive ideas for um, our friends, for people that we know today. I hope you um, would b- properly agree with me in the sense that if you've ever talked with anyone about this, this is what people often push back on. They say that it's not fair. They say it's not fair because people are good. And how can God send good people to hell just because maybe they haven't heard about Jesus? They say that hell isn't um, proportionate, that the idea of something of somebody enduring suffering for an indefinite amount of time into eternity because of what they committed in this life, it doesn't seem to be fair, does it? It doesn't seem to be proportionate. 
And probably the heart of it is that people say, look, a good God wouldn't do this. Someone who's good, who is, um, you know, by our definition, what goodness is, it's, it's a kind of warm embrace. It's an all-encompassing love that just wipes away um, any wrong and just forgives, forgives, forgives without any, any space for hatred and so on. Now, I want to just start by pointing you to the next verses. In verse 51, 52, Jesus says to his disciples, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. He says it's like a householder who goes into his larder, into his storehouse in the house, and he sorts through, and sometimes he brings out something old, like an old bottle of vintage wine, sometimes he, or an old piece of cheese, let's say, and sometimes he brings out something brand new, like freshly baked bread, and he presents them on the table. He says, essentially what he's saying is this, that in the church, in a true church, in, in the real church of God, there's going to be teachings which are as old as, 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 uh, as the world and as old as Scripture. And there's also going to be the new teaching which Christ brought, of the new covenant, the new revelation of who he was. And the reason I draw your attention to this is because I think a lot of people think that the idea of suffering, of punishment, and of hell belongs to a bygone era, um, a time when people painted pictures of flaming pits and de- devils and all that kind of stuff. And I say, look, we're, we're now 21st century people. We're sophisticated people. We no longer abide by these superstitions. I've read books uh, written by Christians who say this stuff, who say we, we've gotten over all that, that part of our faith. And what I'm here to say to you essentially is that I, I don't see any reason to suppose that just because we're 21st century people that we have a better perspective on these things than all the people in the centuries before us. I don't think we're any more moral. I don't think we've got a more moral perspective. This is what C.S. Lewis used to call chronological snobbery, the idea that your age is the best age, the smartest age, the most moral age. What we have to do is look around at the world we live in, and very quickly you'll realize that's not true. Um, I'm not sure that we've ever seen as much exploitation of strong nations against weak at the big scale. And at the small scale... Have you ever known a society more than our Western societies that, that kills more of its own children and does so in the womb before they've even had a breath, taken their first breath? Have you ever known societies where divorce has been so rife, where people don't count their, their word as anything anymore? Commitment means nothing, and it's all about me. It's all about what I feel in any given moment. Now, I know that I'm just picking up on a few examples, but I don't think we're any more moral than the people who've come before us in the centuries before us. So I don't think that's a good argument. And I think that real religion, authentic faith, authentic Christian teaching is bound to contradict what the world believes at certain points. So just because people find this unpalatable, they think it's a swag and you don't want to swallow it, um, we're going to reject that. That doesn't mean that we should, we should just go along with what people say. And a religion which just echoes and imitates and mirrors what the world has to say is not one that I really have much time for because what's, what's it got to offer that's going to challenge or be different? So what we need to do is pull out of our treasury what's old as well as what's new and recognize that if Jesus taught it, then it's good enough for me. I don't know if you realize this, but Jesus talked more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. If there's one doctrine that you could say was his... 
Uh, his, in, in more than anything, it's this, this idea that he's the judge. He, he taught it with absolute clarity, without hesitation, without embarrassment, without a lump in his throat, without sweat on his brow. He taught that he was the judge of all mankind, that he's the judge of me and you. Let me tell you why I think it's totally reasonable to go along with what he says. I'll give you seven quick reasons. The first would be that justice demands that God punish evil. The world knows it. We flick on the news every day and we hear another story about some celebrity who's abused children and whatever else, other evil things, and we think, punish them, punish them, punish them. The world knows that God has to deal with evil. In fact, whenever people ask you, what, how does a God of love allow evil to exist in, in the world? One of the answers we always give is, of course, that God's going to deal with it in the end. But then when you say, talk about hell, they say, well, hell's unfair. You can't have it both ways, can you? Secondly, the idea of a God of love comes from Christianity. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but what's the origin of this idea that God is a loving God? The Bible says God is love, but you won't find that idea in other religions, and you won't find that idea just in nature. There's nothing in nature that would teach you God is love in the way the Bible does. So it comes from the Bible. If the Bible teaches us that God is love and also teaches us that he is a just God who punishes the wicked, then there's no contradiction, is there? Thirdly, I would say love is compatible with anger. A parent who doesn't from time to time feel intense anger at the behavior of their child doesn't love that child. They're they're apathetic to them, indifferent to them. Fourth, love is also compatible with exclusion. A man who loves all women in the world equally is not the kind of guy you'd want to be married to. The kind of love you want in marriage is an exclusive love that says, I love you unlike everyone else in the world. And so God's love is like that. His love is defined in part by by the contrast with the things that he hates. And he hates wickedness and he hates evil and he hates sin. And then we bring it together five by saying, and this is the hardest part, the most difficult thing that people can swallow today. We're all sinners deserving his anger and his exclusion. These days, when you talk about the word sin, very often it's associated with um, slightly racy lingerie and um, eating too much ice cream and this kinds of like, it's got enough guilt just to make things feel pleasurable. No one actually takes the word very seriously these days. But the Bible talks about sin as the most serious thing in the world, the disease that caused all that has gone wrong in, in nature and in you and me. I know it's the hardest thing to confront, but the Bible says that you and I are sinners deserving of God's anger, his hatred even, and his exclusion, his pushing us away. And I'll go further and say that the punishment that Jesus talks about here, a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's a kind of language that gives you a kind of a chill and a sense of, um, you know, it's difficult to swallow, as I said at the start. The reason why I say the punishment fits the offense is simple. That if you commit a sin against me, I am not a great enough being that I can punish you for eternity. But God being infinite in his greatness and his glory is so far above us that any wrong done against him is by definition of infinite guilt and depth and, and uh, worthy of infinite punishment. 
In other words, the greatness of the crime is proportional to the greatness of the one you have committed it against. And then I would say final, the final point on this, that the cross sheds new light on all of this. Because at the cross, we have the place where wrath and mercy meet. We have the place where we understand that God had to deal with sin. And suddenly the reality of hell is brought into focus in what one man experienced for us. And if you take away the need for for us, for you and me, apparently innocent people to be punished, then you're saying that Christ died for no reason. It was pointless. He didn't need to go to the cross. But if you understand that sin is the deepest problem of the human heart, and that God had to deal with it. You know why his wrath was poured out upon his son at the cross, and why also in that moment he has demonstrated once and for all that even if he punishes us as he can, he's also a loving and merciful God because he gave his son and put him in our place. I wanted to begin there because I think that there are some huge implications for how we read these parables and we take seriously what Jesus is putting before us as the destiny of mankind. And in particular in this part, in this parable, the destiny of people inside the church. That's where we're going to get to. But I want to go back to the beginning. Verse 47. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Now, this is actually... In contrast to everything I've been saying so far, an incredibly positive start. We already read earlier in the chapter a parable about Jesus' expectation that the kingdom of God is going to be a world-shaking, transforming thing. Which was surprising because at the time Jesus was one of the most, um, had, was becoming one of the most despised men in the nation and had a very small group of followers. But he said quite confidently that the thing I'm starting is going to grow and become the biggest thing in the world. He's optimistic about his church. He's optimistic about his kingdom. And we find that hard to swallow because I think we're used to the idea and talking about rejection, feeling like we're exiles in the world. The New Testament talks about us being people who don't really belong here. And so we're unsurprised when we we run up against opposition and people aren't interested in what we have to say, right? Jesus says um, that in the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He predicted it. He promised it. He said it's going to be hard going for the church. Now, you may also personally experience that just one too many times. I don't know when you last spoke to someone about your faith in Jesus. But isn't it the case that more often than not, you're met with apathy, a lack of interest, or even hostility to the things that you believe? And when we encounter this again and again, I think we can lose our optimism about the church, and about the gospel. But look at what the gospel does, given the right conditions, and of course, when the power of God is at work in remarkable ways. In the book of Acts, we see, we see some amazing things. So in Acts 2 and verse 47, it says that praising God and having favor with all the people, it says the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church was growing relentlessly and unstoppably. Over in, in chapter 5, verse, um, verse 13 and 14, it says that 
none of the rest, in other words, all the, the people in Israel watching this brand new church come into existence, the people in Jerusalem, it says none of the rest dared join them, but the, the people held them in high esteem. So they were frightened of the church, but they also respected the church. And then it says more and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So there was something relentless and unstoppable about the growth of the church in those early days. That is revival. That's what happens at certain times and places when God, in a, in a kind of sovereign way, begins to move on a nation and on a location and begins, the, the churches get filled and flooded with new people coming in. And I guess when you feel like you've not seen that for such a long time, it's hard to feel the optimism that Jesus does about his church. There's a reason for that, though. There's a reason why you have both reactions, hostility and sometimes crazy um, influx of people. In, in 2 Corinthians, Paul said it this way. He says, with the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. In other words, he says, some people smell us. And they smell the stench of death. Other people smell us and they smell the, stench, the, the, the aroma of life. And they're either repelled or they're attracted, depending on what they smell. There's a fruit in Malaysia um, called a durian, which um, is a big spiky, looks like a massive conker. And you take off the shell and inside is like um, something like the consistency of custard. It's unusual. And... <laughs> This, this fruit has been described by Malaysians as the king of fruits. So to them, it's the aroma from life to life. But by everyone else, it smells like, to everyone else, it smells like rotten meat. The aroma from death to death. In other words, it is one of those fruits that polarizes people. I, I like to think of it like Marmite. You've seen the Marmite advert. So people say you either love it or you hate it. I think it's the most brilliant uh, marketing campaign I've ever seen. And it's also true of Christ. When people come up against the reality of who Jesus claimed to be and of the gospel, the message that tells you you're a sinner, you're more deeply sinful than you ever realized, but also that you're more loved than you could ever dare hope. People either react violently in hostility to it or they're drawn to it, but they can't remain neutral to it. And that's the reason why the church of God is often experiencing persecution and at the same time can be growing and in, in, in experiencing amazing influx of people. What I'm trying to put across to you then is what Jesus' expectation here in this parable is that the kingdom of God is going to be like a net thrown into sea and it's going to start gathering. He's optimistic because he says his church is an attractive thing. It's going to gather people. It's unstoppable. The image then ought to put in our heads the expectation and... Um, the decision to work towards growth in whatever church we're a part of. The image was of guys, the, the, probably a better word than just net is a drag net. The image is that guys stand on the beach and they spread out and they hold a net down in the waters and then they begin to walk on shore. And if they've chosen their spot well, they're going to bring in potentially an entire school of fish onto the shore, but along with it, all kinds of rubbish that's in the lake. Now, Jesus gave his disciples a job to do in Matthew 4 when he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Which means that the church 
at its very, in its DNA, at its core, is an organism that is designed to grow by catching people. Growth is an important aspect of what the church is and does. And I'm not trying to put across to you, I, I'm a, as big a critic as anyone of the view that you can judge success in church by numbers. I don't think you can. I think it's far, far more complicated than that. So we're not looking just for numbers, but we are looking for growth because we want to see fruit for Christ's glory in the city. There's too many people who need to know about this gospel that we have and that we treasure. If growth matters to us, as it would do to any fisherman wanting to catch his, his, his uh, catch for the day, then I think it's vital that we, we constantly, in, in wanting to establish a new church in this part of London, that we constantly revisit the question, well, how are we going to grow? And I think it probably comes down to two main things, two main strategies that the Bible reveals for us. The one is that you need to have a big front door. In other words, a church ought to be like the net, something which just grabs people and catches them up in what it's about. In the New Testament, one of the things that's, that's uh, sort of lifted up and lauded as even a qualification for elders and as a commandment for the people in the church is the gift of hospitality. And whenever the New Testament talks about the gift of hospitality, it's not talking about um, just having your mates around for, um, for dinner and watching a movie. The gift of hospitality in the New Testament is something deeply rooted in Middle Eastern culture, and also something that reflects the heart of God, which is welcoming in the stranger as though he were part of your family. And the reason why it's put there in the list of qualifications for elders is that they're saying, look, if an elder of the church, whose chief job, by the way, is to be a shepherd of the people within its walls, doesn't also have a big enough heart that he cares about the people outside, then he's not qualified to be an elder. And it's not just for the leaders of the church, it's also for the people that they all have this passionate love that wants to draw people into community. So yes, we are about wanting to establish and form a loving community, and part of that is knowing each other in a deep way, but it's got to be something that, that has a passion for the people outside as much as for one another. Or else it's not New Testament community. It's never something that, that pushes people out and establishes walls. It's always something that wants to pull them in. Having a big front door means that you've got to learn how to then to be hospitable, which has many, many applications. It's not just about being loving and friendly. It's about figuring out what language do people speak? How do they understand what we're saying to them? What time of day do we need to be meeting? Where do we need to be meeting? All these kinds of things that will make it easier and bring down barriers that people can come into our midst. So that's the first one, have a big front door. But the second one, and it's no surprise, is that you have to be a people who are constantly, relentlessly communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is attractive. Some of the fish swim away. Some of them jump in the net. That's how the gospel works. When people hear this, I don't remember the... I don't know if you remember the first time you heard the message of, of Jesus or when it first clicked or when you first understood it. But don't you agree with me that it's the most amazing, the most amazing body of knowledge, the most amazing message the world has ever known? 
And the church of Jesus Christ is called to be like the fishermen, hauling in a giant catch. And the way they're going to do it is by relentlessly and with, with great repetition and determination coming back to Jesus, talking about him, loving him, being utterly passionate and excited about him. And I don't care if you find this hard or not. If you can be passionate about anything, the latest film you've seen, the latest restaurant you've been to, whatever, then you know how to evangelize. It's just letting out what's in your heart, isn't it? Now, what happens when Jesus in his optimism is right and the church grows? He goes on and tells us, when it's full, there we have it. He expects his kingdom to be extraordinarily successful in the world. When it's full, men drew it ashore and they sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. What he's telling us is this, that when you use a dragnet, as I said earlier, you're going to catch all kinds of stuff. And essentially, this, this parable is honing in on, on what, will, what the church is going to look like when it's full of people. And he says, essentially, the church is going to be a very mixed and messy thing. The church is going to be messy. I want to just unpack the implications from three angles, from the world looking in, the church looking around, and the churchgoer, you and me, looking down at ourselves, at what the implications are of this parable. Firstly, then, the world looking in. When the world looks at the church, what do they think and what do they see? I think probably um, two of the... The biggest objections that I've come across whenever I've talked with non-believers about, about Christ and about the church, very often people, people love Jesus, don't they? They love the idea of what we talk about in terms of his, his self-sacrifice and indeed who, his moral teaching and all these kinds of things. But they hate the church. And the reasons they put forward are, firstly, the history of the church. How often you hear people hark back to the Crusades, even if they don't know anything about the Crusades. They just say that this word they've heard about the Crusades, the evils that the church or Christians ostensibly have done. And then they talk about hypocrisy. I don't know about you, but have you ever heard people talk about the hypocrisy in the church? Or have you seen it yourself? That churches can be very messy places where Christians aren't always that great. This parable helps us to at least begin making an answer to that kind of a thing. When the world looks in and sees a messy history and a messy present, I think this is one of the reasons, by the way, why the media loves to, to pull out every example of, a, of, a, um, of, a, of churches going wrong, of people being suffering in churches, of priests doing evil and wicked things. Because obviously there's a disjunction there, isn't there, between what we say publicly and what's happening behind closed doors in private. What can we say to this? Well, we can say on the one hand that Christians aren't perfect. The Bible's absolutely transparent and honest about this. The New Testament would, would be a much smaller document if the church was a, was a more perfect thing. Most of it was written to correct all that was going wrong in churches, including people falling out about petty things, um, which you and I have all seen in church, um, including probably what you haven't seen in church, things like incest Paul has to deal with in, in Corinth. 
and all kinds of people sleeping with prostitutes and all this kind of messy stuff that happens in churches. The church has always been hypocritical, and the Bible doesn't try to cover up that point. It says we're not perfect. But then we can go a bit further and think, well, what does this parable teach us? It tells us, to use the words of um, one, one man, he said, a horse brought into a house is not thereby made human, which means that it doesn't matter that someone calls themselves a Christian, that they're a churchgoer. The reality is that churches are mixed with people who, who love Jesus and people who just love being in church or just want power or want some kind of influence or whatever it is that brings them into the, the walls of the church. And so you can't always place the blame. You certainly can't place the blame on Christ. You can't even necessarily um, blame Christians. Sometimes it's just the fact that churches are messy things. That's the world looking in. Secondly, the church looking around. I think there are two opposite dangers a church can walk in. That One is, on the one hand, that you can become too open uh, to anyone and everyone being a part of your community with no sense of, of a passion for, for the purity of Christ's church. And uh, there's any number of churches you can visit today that, that not only... Um, not only state that they're, they're open, but celebrate the fact that they're open to all kinds of people um, and without any challenge, without any rebuke, without any effort to, to seek to modify or reform people's lifestyles. They, they, they build their identity on being open. And you think, well, what glory does that bring to Jesus who not only died for sin, but then also said, be holy as I am holy. Christ wants a pure church. There's no question about it. But on the other hand, some churches go to the opposite extreme. And in wanting to become a pure church, which we do, which means that every one of us wants to root out sin in our lives and wants to, be, um, wants to help one another grow in Christ, in wanting to be a pure church, some churches are pushed almost too far in the other direction. They become so exclusive, so impenetrable, that if you were just a normal person walking in off the street, you're going to feel judged, you're going to feel unwelcome, you're going to feel like you don't belong in that crowd. Some of them even name themselves. Like there's a, um, the, is it, there's a group called the Exclusive Brethren. Now, I've never been to an Exclusive Brethren church, but they could be the most lovely people on the planet. But doesn't just the name itself tell you, you're not welcome here, we're exclusive. And a church like that is, is only ever going to grow by having babies. Now, we're doing our best to make that happen here. We've got a couple more on the way, one, three more on the way, one hopefully born today, two more in a few months' time. But that's not a very good strategy for, for extending the kingdom of God in the world. The kingdom of God is always meant to be about bringing in the stranger, bringing in the, the foreigner, bringing in the sinner like you and me. So somehow we have to reconcile in our hearts the tension between wanting to be a pure church, which we do, which means you and I are responsible for one another in our walk with Jesus. Our job is to help each other to grow. You should never take offense when another Christian comes to you and says, look, I see sin in your life, deal with it. That's their job, and they love you if they do that. But we've got to reconcile that with the tension of of um, not wanting to become so, um, so pure that we, we, we can't deal with the mess. That when someone comes in and they're honest about their failings, that they don't feel like they can be here. 
my hope is that increasingly we're going to see a lot of that mess here and that not only am I going to be busier as, as a result, but every one of you is going to be busier as a result because you might not think of yourself as a mature Christian, but let me tell you, you're, you're practically um, a professor of Christianity in comparison with some people. When babies are born into this church, new believers are born into this church, and they just need to know the basics about Christ. We need to have nurturing, motherly hearts that wants to bring them in and say, I'll tell you about Jesus. And I'm going to help you clean up your mess. Even if you mess up your nappy multiple times a day, I'm there with the wet wipes. We're going to deal with it and get you through this. That's what church should be like. I apologize for all the baby analogies. I'm just going through that phase right now. (laughs) Finally, the church goer looking down. We've talked about the world looking in, the church looking around, and just dealing with the fact that it's not a perfect organization. And this is where it gets very personal. I think the most direct application of this parable is that Jesus is, is, is wanting you to look at your own heart. Because he's saying that not everyone who's in is in. Not everyone who's caught in the net, who's part of church, who's part of the busyness of church, I don't care how many ministries you're involved in or what your, your history is in church, he says not everyone who's in is actually in. And at the end of the age, when there's a sorting process that goes on, there's going to be a division between those who are his, his real children and those who aren't. I think there's going to be an awful lot of surprises then. When we study the New Testament, trying to look at what are the marks, what makes a person a Christian, we can start to rule out a bunch of things that people think qualify them. We can rule out your, your uh, sort of family connections. I know far too many friends who basically, on account of growing up in a Christian home, just think they, they, they were fine. But in John 1, it says that those who are children of God were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, not being born of blood means that just because you grew up in a Christian home does not even remotely mean that you are a, a, a Christian. says over in Matthew 3 as well, something quite similar. When the Pharisees are coming to John the Baptist, and he, you know, in the way that only he could, he goes at them. He is the ultimate fiery prophet, and he constantly cuts them off at the knees. And one of the things he says to them, just after he calls them a brood of vipers, a pile of snakes, he, he says to them, don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. It says it's not your family connection and it's not even, it's not the fact that you're an Israelite. None of this matters. And the message in the New Testament is that a lot of the reasons people give for saying, this is why I'm a Christian, I was born in this family, or I'm, you know, you ask your average guy on the street today who fills in the census every 10 years, um, are you a Christian? They'll say, yeah, I'm, I'm British, aren't I? What a tragedy. 
Our job is to constantly come against that kind of nonsense. One of the more subtle ones, though, is that a lot of people think that they're Christians because they say, well, I'm a good person. In Ephesians 2, Paul says it's by grace you've been saved. And and he says it's not your own doing. In other words, it's nothing to do with how you've lived your life. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works, he says, so that no one may boast. If salvation was set up in such a way that you could be good enough to be acceptable to God, then you'd be able, ultimately, when you get through the judgment, to look back on your life and boast before everyone, see, I made it. I'm something. And God has taken away that opportunity from mankind by saying, nobody's going to be acceptable before me just based on your lifestyle. For whatever people reason, reasons people give up, they line up for saying, this is why I'm a Christian. Look at me. I've got this, 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 these, all these credentials. The Bible slaps them down again and again. It says, none of that's good enough. And what it tells us relentlessly is this message. No, you must be born again. There has to be a miracle of God in the heart that transforms you and gives you a new nature, a new heart, a new identity. You become a new person. Without wanting to sort of leave it on a a cliff edge, as it were. It really comes down to two things then. When we're reading this parable and we're looking, well, how could you ever know if you were one of the, the righteous people, as it were, the people who, who Christ will count as acceptable in the judgment? And it really comes down to two things. The first is what you, you believe and, and confess. As Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. He says it it really does come down to something very, very simple. Do you think it's true? When you think about this faith that we talk about, Jesus, Son of God, dying on a cross, raised from the dead. Do you think it's true? And if you do, and if you've confessed it as the truth, Paul says, that's it. That's enough. But then there's a lot of people who who, who maybe say the words, but the belief isn't really in the heart. And how would we know the difference? And that, that brings us to the second thing, that your life will show a difference. This is why James says in James 2, he says, what good is it, uh, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? And he says a bit further on, so also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. In other words, when you have this real faith that Paul's talking about, it's going to, it's going to naturally come out in something in your life. There's going to be a change in your life. There's going to be a transformation in your life that it comes to light. It's evident that you are part of God's people. So you don't need to be left guessing, waiting for the judgment that Jesus is talking about here in this parable and just hoping and crossing your fingers. I wonder if I've made it in or not. That's essentially where you're left in in so many other religions and also in the more sort of confused legalistic ends of Christianity. People going hopefully day after day to Mass, saying their, their, their prayers and their Hail Marys, or people just going out of mere tradition. They don't know. They never know. Because they're, they're basing their faith on all the wrong things. They don't know if they're in or not. 
But the New Testament makes it very simple. It says, have you believed? And has that belief resulted in a change in your life? Sometimes people think that this belief that we need to have is, is a kind of a particularly strong belief. But I don't care how weak it is. I don't care how feeble. It doesn't matter the strength, the quality, the amount of faith you have. It only matters that you have, have taken hold of Jesus. That's all that matters. It's a little bit like when you get on a train. When you get on a train... It's only one weak step that gets you on, and that train is going to take you to the destination. The New Testament talks about being a Christian as being, being, being joined to Jesus Christ, being hidden in Christ, being united with Christ, so that all of his strength is what carries you. And it's not a train like the trains in India, which I've been on, where you can kind of hang out the door and hope that you don't get your head locked off by a passing pylon. It's not like a train where you might fall off. It's not a train that has multiple stops and you can get on, get off as you feel. It's more like the train I went on when I, with a bunch of American friends when I accidentally we were meant to go to East Croydon. And I took them to Haywards Heath, which is about 40, 50 miles outside London because there were no stops and I got on the wrong train. It's like that. When, you get, when you're joined to Christ, there is no way out because he takes hold of you and all you need is that initial step and you are his. The reason, of course, is that like the mustard seed faith, it's not the quality of the faith itself. It's, it's the strength of the one you have faith in. It's Jesus. He does it all. So we needn't read this parable and go away afraid, go away unsure. But for anybody who, who hasn't understood even these these very essential, basic, fundamental things, they must, must reconcile themselves to Jesus before it's too late. Friends, the message then of this parable can really be summed up like this, that, that hell is real and that Christ is the judge, that the church is designed and geared up and programmed to grow like nothing else on the planet, but in doing that, it's going to be messy. And we need to look at our own lives and think, well, I go to church, but is that enough? Am I, am I, do I belong to Christ? And if not, then do something about it today. And we also need to look at Christ's church and say, our job is not to build the perfect church. If we tried it, we'd probably become the most tight-lipped, difficult, awkward, unwelcoming, bristling, prickly church in London. Our job is to see this place become the most welcoming church in London. And to to be like the net, and then to trust that Jesus is going to deal with the imperfections in the end. That's his job, not ours.